It really is starting people on the journey of getting a new life, and it's priceless. Food Addiction is a podcast which explores the disease of food addiction and presents the solution. We interview professionals and counselors who specialize in the disease of food addiction, and we interview individuals who have successfully recovered from food addiction and discuss how they did it. Esther Helga Goodmans-Dotier was motivated to change careers after she recovered from food addiction by opening a food addiction treatment center and the INFACT School, the world's first and only sugar and food addiction counseling training, which offers a recognized certification. Check out the website for more information on obtaining this certification, as well as proven recovery programs at infactschool.com. Listen to these episodes as we discuss the problem and the solution around food addiction. I'm Susan Branscombe, a recovered food addict and the host of this podcast. Today, my guest is on the podcast is Amanda Leith. Welcome, Amanda. Thank you. Glad to be here. Yeah, glad to have you here. This is going to be a great, uh, great talk. Um, I'm going to introduce you and then we'll dive into some questions. Amanda Leith is the owner and director of Shift Recovery by Acorn. Amanda lives in Vancouver, Canada. She launched Shift Recovery by Acorn in the spring of 2019, opening an exciting new chapter of the 25-year legacy of Acorn Food Dependency Recovery Services. Amanda began as a member of ACORN, uh, the ACORN team in 2015, and she identifies as a recovering food addict. Amanda is an addiction counselor, a certified food addiction counselor, certified food addiction professional, and CNAPS trained, uh, trained, which is an acronym for Center for Applied Sciences, Advanced Relapse Prevention Specialist, ARPS, with a background in drug and alcohol addiction counseling and group facilitation. Amanda's passion for recovery from food addiction helps to produce life-changing results with her clients. Her sharp sense of what needs to be addressed first in an individual's life in order to overcome food addiction guides her practice. The message that she brings to those struggling is one of hope. The website is foodaddiction.com. So welcome again, Amanda. Thank you. Yeah. Looking forward to diving into some, some questions here and talk about, uh, talk about your work. You and I met in May of 2019. It uh, may have been one of your first intensives as an owner with Shift. Uh, and I came in not as a mm-hmm. student. I did participate as a student, but it was part of a kind of a leadership program that Shift had that Phil, I think, was overseeing, if you remember that. And uh, you worked with Phil Wardell. Yes, it was the professional training program. Yes, professional training program, right. You worked with Phil Wardell and Mary Fushi, who founded Acorn and ran it for 25 years. And then you purchased the business in the spring of 2019 from them, and you changed the name to Shift Recovery by Acorn. So, Talk about the company and the background and why you knew you wanted to do this work. Anything else about the Shift organization? Oh, thanks, Susan. Thanks for that intro. Yeah, so I um, was a uh, recovering addict and I was a food addict, although I didn't know I was a food addict. And um, I could not get uh, recovery from my food no matter what I did. And I tried really, really hard. And I found Acorn 
and went there for my own treatment as well as my professional training, the same training program that you talked about, Susan, doing. And as a matter of fact, I phoned and talked to Phil about going for the professional training. And he said to me, you know, I actually think you probably should come for yourself, Amanda, (laughs) Uh, which my ego didn't like one bit. Uh, But that was the reality. So I walked into their treatment program, their intensive, which still runs today. And my life changed. I had no idea it was going to change, but it changed. And so I, not only did I get treatment there, I started volunteering with them. I started working there as well as working at a drug and alcohol treatment center in Vancouver. And then Phil and Mary got to uh, retirement time and it just, I was the lucky one. I was there at the right time and, and decided to keep this uh, legacy going um, as the work that's done there is like nothing I've ever seen. And it, mm-hmm. it gave me a life. It didn't save my life. It gave me a life. And I was passionate to pass that on to others. Really, my mm-hmm. message is food addiction is real, number one. And two, there's help if you want it. Yeah. And I got that. And so I wanted to pass it on. Yeah, we're going to talk about your personal recovery. But first, we're going to talk about shift and uh, get into some questions about the disease of food addiction, the substance use disorder of food addiction. You describe food addiction as a savage, fatal disease. Talk about what you mean. Well, I believe addiction in general is a, is a savage, fatal disease. Um, it is brutal. It's brutal to have. It's brutal to treat. And food addiction, I believe, is is possibly, if you can categorize, categorize them, one of the worst there is, as we have to eat. We have to eat every day. There's one that makes it hard. And secondly, it's not very recognized in the world yet as food addiction as a thing. We have a lot of competition in the treatment of food addiction, which we do not in drug and alcohol treatment. And what I mean by that is the diet industry. The diet industry is putting out this message constantly about losing weight, getting thinner. And so one of the symptoms of food addiction often is obesity, or overweight. And so there's so much other treatment around the obesity line for these folks that they don't even know there's a possibility that there's another disease out there that could be the cause of their weight. Um, And there's just so much shame around it. And so it's really the, the, the hardest part is getting the knowledge out there that this is real. Yeah. It is real. And that it's no one's fault. It's not. Yeah, it's not our fault. The the food addiction itself. You described uh, in one of the uh, podcasts I listened to about about you, uh, you described three different types of eaters. Number one, the normal eater. Number two, the emotional eater. And then number three, the food addict. And we know that there's some overlap here. Some food addicts are emotional eaters. Some emotional eaters are food addicts. But describe what this means, these uh, categories. Sure. This is a a beautiful um, piece of work that Phil Wardell uh, has written, and and, and we use it a lot. So, And again, this sounds like they're black and white. But as you said, Susan, there's a lot of overlap between them. Um, So the the first category would be what we'd call the normal eater. And I, I hate the word normal, but I don't have a better word for it. What is normal? But this is the type of eater that is going along through life, all is going well. 
Um, they go to the doctor one day and the doctor's like, you know, your, your cholesterol is getting a little bit high or your blood pressure is getting a bit high. Um, you've got a little bit of extra weight on you. They give you a food plan, an exercise plan. It's kind of the old calories in, calories out diet that we've all been told about. And they're given that diet and off they go and they're good. They, they can do that diet. There's many people like that in the world. Um, and so what they needed was knowledge and willpower. This is what a lot of like, like um, the pay and weight, the big pay and weight diet places in the world, it's perfect for these people because they can get the information and off they go and follow it. The second category is the emotional eater. And these are the folks that are really um, eating over what's eating them, if you will. They've got past trauma, whether it's big T trauma or little T trauma, and they actually don't know how to be in the world and have their feelings. So in order to deal with their feelings, they eat. And I'm really simplifying this. Um, and so what they need is support, probably from a counselor or a therapist, it could be group work, with tools and skills to be in this world, to live life, to deal with their feelings. And then when it comes to their food, this is where mindful eating, intuitive eating, the goal is that they can really eat everything in moderation. There's a ton of treatment for the first category, normal eater, and the second category, emotional eaters out there. There's a ton mm -hmm. of treatment for that. Right. Then the third category is addictive eating. So food addiction. And this is when we now actually have a physical component to our disease. It's a brain disease, and we actually have physical cravings and the mental obsession that's physical to us and only to people in this category. We also most likely need skills, how to be in the world and deal with feelings, but we must deal with the physical part of our disease before we can deal with the emotional part. Mm -hmm. And again, they, those overlap each other. That's very, very basic, but they're very different treatment. And if you're, you need to be diagnosed with the right disease so you can get the right treatment. So if mm -hmm. I'm a food addict, but I was being treated as an emotional eater, it's never going to work for me. Right. And I'm just going to have more and more shame and failure because mm -hmm. it's the wrong, I'm being treated for the wrong disease. Right. Yeah. Um, and I relate to what you're talking about. My, my husband is a normal eater. I've seen him throw an actual half an ice cream cone away. And I can still remember where we were and what year it was. I mean, I just like, you just don't do that, you know, and, and he needs to lose. He's always been pretty thin, yeah. but he had 10 pounds. He's like, well, I just cut my donut out in the morning, you know, and then I lost the 10 pounds, you know, right. he's a normal eater. And he asked me, why can't you just moderate? Yeah. And I said, I, I don't know why I can't moderate. And mm. I, I know now, uh, but uh, yeah. Um, right. And obesity, like you say, is a symptom. It can be a symptom of food addiction. You know, it can be a symptom of emotional overeating, you know? So, right. It can be a symptom of many things. And we need to be careful that we're not treating the symptoms of these diseases, yes. but rather the, the actual primary disease. Right. Um, yeah. And we can only treat the primary if we have the right diagnosis. Yes. Talk about, um, let's, let's dive into food addiction a bit here with mid-stage and late-stage food addiction and, and uh, defining what those are. I think you and I, I know I can say I was, and I think I heard you say 
that uh, we were both late stage food addicts uh, to the point where we weren't eating. I guess one of the characteristics is we weren't eating for the pleasure of the food or for the effects so much as we didn't want to withdraw from it, letting it go. Yeah. So um, we believe there is different stages of uh, addiction and um, certainly most of the people that we're dealing with at shift are, are middle and late stage food addicts. And by the time we're late stage food addicts, you said something really important, Susan, I'm no longer eating because it's fun and I'm enjoying it. I'm actually eating now because I have to, I have to, I don't have a choice. Literally, my brain is now wired that if I stop eating the substances that I'm addicted to, um, then I'm going to have a lot of adverse reactions that are very, very uncomfortable. And so it might have started in the early stages of, oh, this is kind of enjoyable. I eat for me, it's sugar, flour, and volume. I eat that and I kind of feel good. And our brain registers, oh, I ate that donut. I felt good. Okay. That's okay. Um, and then it gets to the point where in the middle stage, I know that if I eat this food, I'm going to feel good. And I, I, I now being driven to feel better. And then when I get down to late stage, I literally have no choice. Mm-hmm. And it's kind of like I'm backed into a corner. You know, I'm going to, I'm going to die if I keep eating this way but I'm also going to die if I don't eat this way. Right. And right. It, it, it's, it's kind of that it's painful. It's become very, very painful. And my life is really become about food mm-hmm. and getting my fix. And mm-hmm. I might be able to look okay on the outside, but inside my whole life is now becoming about obsessing about food, mm-hmm. getting the food, thinking about the food, um, mm-hmm. and then feeling sick from eating. Right. Yeah. Uh, one of the things I think I remember you saying about uh, late stage food addiction is despite all the preponderance of negative consequences of it, meaning that, you know, you weighed 350, I weighed over 200 pounds. And, um, you know, just despite all of that and the high blood pressure, the diabetes, which I had, I was still eating. I still couldn't stop. And the pay and weigh and the diets and all of that I tried just didn't didn't work for me as a food addict. Yeah, thanks for, for reminding me about that, Susan. It's such an important thing, the, the those negative consequences. Um, they just keep piling up. And... Uh, they're different for everybody. But for me, yes, I had a lot of health problems and it wasn't for lack of trying. People try so hard. So I had really serious health consequences and I still couldn't stop. I'd wake up in the morning and say, not today, Amanda, not today. You know, the doctor just told you yesterday, you're pre-diabetic and it didn't matter. In that moment, I needed the food, needed more than I needed to be healthy or uh, be able to live my life. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Talk about the importance of um, abstinence. I've been abstinent for about six and a half years. I think you had mentioned in here, if I calculated properly, it's around nine, 10 years of abstinence. Yeah. So I'm at, yeah, uh, I'm at eight and a half years abstinence half now. Years. Okay. And um, so, so abstinence for, for me. So, and this, this does look different um, for everybody, but here's the, the, to, in my opinion, 
the key here for any addiction is that we must be physically sober. Our, our addiction has two components, emotional sobriety and physical sobriety. And the truth is most of recovery looks at the emotional part of it, but we must be physically sober first. So in food addiction, that's abstinence. And abstinence is being completely free of all the foods and ingredients that trigger my addiction. And, um, and some of the, the most common are flour, sugar, um, some people are grains and then volume. We can actually be addicted to volume of food. Yeah. I and I've been in and out of a lot of programs, but I had never been truly physically abstinent. I had cut back or, you know, maybe I'd stopped eating cookies, but I was still eating sugar and flour. Mm-hmm. And as long as I am putting those into my body, I don't stand a chance of healing. And one day, it's like we're playing Russian roulette. If I'm still eating them, my brain at one day guaranteed is going to get triggered that I will not be able to stop. So even if mm-hmm. one day I can just have one cookie, there will come a day always where I can't stop at one and I have to keep going. So abstinence is like the foundation of recovering from addiction. We mm-hmm. have to get physically sober, which means completely free of all addictive substances Mm -hmm. all uh yeah uh, sugar flour if some people are you know have to cut flour out but yeah volume eaters obsessive compulsive behaviors around food um a lot of times you know somebody may be 10 or 20 pounds overweight but a food addict and they're they do things compulsively with food right yeah really important what you just said susan that we don't have to be obese to be a food addict. Food addicts look all sorts of shapes, sizes, underweight, uh, normal weight. I say again in quotes, obese. Um, we do not have to be a certain size. And, and, and I just want to say that we will not get the freedom from food obsession or the cravings as long as we are ingesting any of the substances. We just won't. So we're not, when we talk about freedom, we're not talking about white knuckling and every day, oh my gosh, I hope I can keep this down as I did with dieting. This is freedom. We don't have to think about food. Our lives isn't run by how much we're eating anymore. Right. That's, yeah. and we only get the freedom starting with the physical abstinence. Right. So that uh, you have to get through the detox phase of abstinence and getting rid of these things from your body. But once you do, then the cravings stop and the physical allergy, as we call it, that physical response to um, to sugar and these these things uh, does eventually go away. I remember my work with Shift and, and you uh, in 2019, we had to list all of the things all the foods we'd ever binged on. And I had about 35 things that I'd binged on and, and it probably wasn't a comprehensive list. And so it was pretty uh, revealing to me that, yeah, a lot of, a lot of foods I couldn't stop once I started. Um, Susan, I just want to say something, what you just said, I, I couldn't stop once I started. That is such an important part of the difference between an emotional eater and a, and a food addict is that, you couldn't stop once you started because you have this allergy, as they call it. And all allergy means is we have an adverse reaction. And as an mm-hmm. addict, your adverse reaction is this physical craving and mental obsession. Mm-hmm. And that's why people like you were talking about your husband who don't have that, they have no understanding. Like, what is wrong with you? Why can't you just moderate? The truth is, 
Once we're middle or late stage food X, we can't moderate. We have lost all control over our food. And it's just like sobriety and alcoholism. The, the thing about alcohol, though, is that um, you just have to put it down. With, with food, we talk about letting the tiger out of the cage three to five times a day, depending on how many times you eat, because you have to eat. But you're eating, you know, healthy whole foods. Um, but I saw I had when I attended Shift in May of 2019 as an observer, part of the you know Phil's professional training program. I had a chance to do the five day intensive, and I saw the work that you did there. And uh, it's pretty amazing what what goes on in these intensives. So when people are coming to Shift uh, for the intensive. They are detoxing from trigger foods. In other words, they may have eaten a big pizza last night, you know, um, the, the food behaviors, sugar, right? And then dealing with emotional stuff. And then we didn't, we weren't able to have caffeine. Plus, I recall you took our phones away from us for five days. So <laughs> all of the things that I went to, <laughs> the food had been down, but yeah, caffeine in the phone. But, um, yeah, just talk about that. Uh, so unless they've been abstinent for, from sugar and trigger foods and been abstinent for a while, they're coming in detoxing from, from uh, their addiction as you're working, doing some emotional work, right? Often when people come in, they are detoxing. And so not everyone detoxes, but many people are detoxing from sugar and flour, the volume of food, and caffeine. So... That's very common. And normally with food, uh, the worst days are about day three and four. So people are cranky, they're irritated, they're tired. And that's all part of the program. We actually need to detox so that we don't have cravings anymore. Yeah. And one of the, the program was set up in for, for that amount of time originally so that people were able to be with us when they were detoxing and not on your own. Cause it can be really hard when you're in full detox and you're craving sugar and you don't have support to detox on your own. Yeah. So that's right. And people don't have their phones cause it's, we take this very seriously True. and we kind of call it like people are in intensive care. This is a deadly disease. And so we don't want, we want to give everyone the best chance possible to recover. And so mm -hmm. we don't want any distractions. So right. we don't take their keys. People can leave it at any time, but <laughs> their phones, uh, their coffee, their food. And I will tell you, people complain about it at the beginning, but I don't think I have ever had anyone in the last eight years complain to me when they're leaving that they're so grateful they didn't have their phone, they weren't drinking coffee and that they detox with us. So yeah, the people are in there detoxing and, um, uh, getting used to weighing and measuring food, which I do, and, and you teach them, and then the food is prepared for them. It's really cool that that is done. Um, but talk about the process. I remember the check-ins. I remember it's kind of like, okay, once you put the food down, you are detoxing, but then you're doing some work around, you know, big emotions mm -hmm. like fear and anger. Um, and uh, talk about talk about what comes up and what you've seen. Sure. I, I just want to say that the, so the intensive was designed, uh, Phil uh, and Mary who um, started ACORN um, 
Phil was a counselor at a addictions hospital that had a wing for food addiction. Mm-hmm. And that was a six week program. And when that shut down, they created this five day program. And the idea was that what's the most important things we can do in the shortest amount of time so that it's affordable for people. And so the, this intensive has literally been running this way for over 30 years. And uh, the only changes that we've made when, when uh, I came in a shift is we, we went from five days to seven days and we now have a seven week virtual aftercare program. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, it, it really holds true to um, how it originally started. And so the process is uh, absolutely people get abstinent. Uh, they're getting a weighted measured food plan. And it's very organic because everyone walks through the door with different things. And so often what we find with people is that they have one of the reasons, um, because they have been eating for so long, they actually don't have the tools to be in this world. We kind of have a living problem, not really a food problem. And once the food is down, that is the smallest part of our recovery. (laughs) It's now we get to learn a new way of living. Yes. And so whatever feelings come up, whether it's anger, grief, shame, past traumas, we deal with it. So we don't dig for them to come up. Um, at a lot of places, when you're first getting sober, they don't want to deal with trauma or big feelings. But what we've realized is when people put their substance down, those feelings come up. So we better give them some tools to deal with it or eventually probably sooner rather than later, they're going to go pick up the food again. So we do process work. We have a very, um, people call it our secret sauce. I don't know if it's really a secret sauce, but uh, the way we deal with, with emotions, with, with anger and sadness mm-hmm. and grief, we really hold space for that if it's up and it's not up for everybody. Um, and doing work in a group, it's far more um, healing than just with a one-on-one counselor. That's right. Um, yeah. gr- each each peer-to-peer being in that setting with other people that have the same diseases as, as you, their lives might not be the same, but they're showing up. We're being raw. We're being vulnerable, and the healing that goes on in this short week is it, it, it's miraculous. Yeah. You know, I remember before I came and I thought, oh, one week that's not going to do anything. Before I got my um, recovery. And, um, it's just life changing. It really is starting people on the journey of getting a new life and it's priceless. It's yeah. Yeah. I saw you at work and, uh, you have a real instinct for people and kind of where they are in your bio. You say, you talk about what needs to be, uh, what needs to be addressed first in an individual's life in order to overcome food addiction. So you, you have a sense for people and where they need to go. Um, and so talk about, uh, the clients, they, they become abstinent. They may deal with trauma and feelings, have, get some tools for how to deal with things in their, in their world. And, and they're going back out to reentry. And then, so they're going back out to family, friends, work people. And it turns out that not everybody in the world is working a 12 step program. Unfortunately, it would make my life a lot easier. <laughs> so, uh, talk about the support here, the the aftercare, and uh, where they go from here in terms of uh, recovery, twelve step work, that kind of thing. 
Yeah. Yeah. The good news is we actually don't need other people to understand. Um, it's great news if they do, but thank gosh, we don't need people to understand our disease. Um, and it really is true. You know, we, we, we kind of, we, we often say to our clients when, when we're getting ready to, to, um, end, uh, end the program. Okay. Now you're going back out into the addictive world. You've been here in this real world because we're really real in the intensive. And then we're going back out into the world, uh, where food addiction most often is not even accepted and there's food all around us. And, you know, we talk about it. It's like people were coming out of intensive care, except one big difference. If we were really coming out of intensive care, our family and our friends would be there. They'd be picking us up. They'd be supporting us. But when we come out of treatment for food addiction, a lot of people, like you were saying, have no idea. They think we've maybe been at at a spa or a workshop. And the reality is um, we have to set our lives up um, and really protect our recovery and do it one day at a time. So that's one of the things we have added in, um, in shift is, is this aftercare because more and more it's been proven scientifically that in the first 24 months of recovery, people need substantial support, um, recovery from an addiction. So anyone that's coming to our intensive, uh, it's actually an eight week program. It's one week intensive and then followed up by a seven week virtual aftercare program. Mm -hmm. And part of that aftercare program is you're doing a group once a week with all your fellow peers. You're doing one-on-one sessions. You're doing daily uh, check-ins, see how you're doing. There's a lot of checkpoints. Um, And so that goes on. So it's, it's your first two months. And then we, we, we have an outline of what people can do in their first 24 months of recovery. And it includes, um, peer support, which would be like 12 step fellowships, mm-hmm. um, as well as professional support, which is things they can do at shift. Uh, and so we have other programs. We have a virtual six week relapse prevention program. Uh, we have a virtual six week emotional sobriety program. We have a virtual six week, um, breaking free from codependence patterns program, as well as we have, um, addiction coaches and addiction um, counselors that people can work with. We also do um, three-day weekends with alumni. You have to be alumni that they come, and it's a three-day weekend led by one of the counselors. And um, we just, we deal with life. What's going on? People are sober then. We're not dealing with the food. We're actually dealing with life. Yeah. Um, and again, the, the, the magic in that is people, people supporting each other. And then one other thing I'll say that we, we brought in during COVID. COVID was, was in some ways brought a lot of blessings to us. Um, and it allowed us to do a lot of our work virtually, which I wasn't very excited about, but it really worked. It worked. Yeah. And one of the things work. we created yeah. was these free, it did work and it does work. And we created these, um, free four times a week shift strong calls and anyone in the community. And even if you're brand new can join the shift strong calls and it's just a one hour check-in led by one of our coaches or therapists where you just get to check in. And so the community of shift is an incredibly strong community peer to peer. The support there I hear people say all the time is, is just like nothing they've ever experienced. Yeah. Yeah. Wonderful. Let's uh, let's talk a little about your your personal journey with addiction. You were like me. You had uh, had alcohol as one of the first uh, addictions, and um, 
After I got sober, I began to use food and sugar in earnest. Uh, got sober from alcohol, began to use food. My weight ballooned up to 200. And uh, I understand from your background and what I've heard, you at one time weighed around 350 pounds uh, when you came to Acorn. You, by that time, you had tried a number of things, diets like me, various recovery avenues. You had bariatric surgery in 2006. So talk about coming to Acorn uh, now shift and uh, they, what they were talking about, how they were talking about food resonated with you. Talk about that. Yeah, thanks, Susan. So yes, I, I like you, I, I think I was born an addict. I don't know what it was, but I, I just knew that I was born with this big hole in me, this kind of black hole that I just, I was always yearning for something really to belong, to feel important, to fit in, to be loved. Um, and so um, I, I was a chubby uh, young girl. I liked food. And then in my teenage years, I discovered alcohol and drugs and boys, and I didn't need food anymore. Um, and then, you know, in my early twenties, um, those things kind of quieted down and, uh, I picked up food and with a vengeance and, um, it just, no matter what I did. And as you said, I, I really did a lot. I, I was constantly on diets. I did therapy. I did a lot of intuitive eating. I did a lot of emotional eating programs. Very, very well-meaning practitioners were trying to help me. Yeah. And I wasn't getting better. They, they actually probably saved my life in the sense that they were supporting me. Um, but I was getting larger and larger and larger and larger. Mm -hmm. And... um. Yeah, in 2006, I had lap band surgery. I think I was about, at that point, maybe 290 pounds when I had lap band surgery. Mm. And I, I remember just being so excited. Finally, my dream was going to come true. Um, I was going to lose the weight. And I got the surgery. And, you know, on that surgery, I, I think I lost possibly 20, 25 pounds mm. because I couldn't follow the food plan. That wasn't my problem. And, and as a matter of fact, because I couldn't follow the food plan, I got incredibly sick on the food, on, on, with the lap band. I, I, I was really, really sick. Mm. I was throwing up constantly. Uh, and that was removed um, in 2010. There was quite mm. a bit of damage because, of, because I couldn't follow the food plan. Um, but it didn't stop me. You know, I was, the doctors told me, you know, I, I was pre-diabetic and then I was diabetic. So I was giving myself shots every day. I had high cholesterol, high blood pressure. And, uh, and I'd gone to other programs, believe me, I'd gone to other programs and tried to get help and my weight just kept getting higher. I don't actually know my highest weight. I know it was uh, above 300 pounds. Mm -hmm. I don't think I got to 350, but it was above 300 pounds. I don't know my exact weight. So, um, yeah, then I went back to some of the 12-step programs that were just amazing, but I couldn't get food abstinent in my 12-step programs. So I went to um, Acorn, as you said, and all I can say, Susan, is I remember walking in, I was hopeless. I was defeated. There was nothing in me that thought this was going to work. I was angry. I was miserable. Yeah. Gosh, I wouldn't have wanted to be the, the, uh, the, the counselors that were treating me. I was miserable and angry. and. I can't tell you the honest truth is I don't remember hearing something that was like, Oh, that makes sense. All I know is they gave me this food plan 
that was free of all my substances, which had never happened. I was now weighing and measuring my food, which at the time I thought was incredibly restrictive and ridiculous. And I just was there. And I remember being there for the five days. And I knew inside of me, they were talking about me when they were talking about the being out of control with food. I knew I tried really hard and that there was nothing left for me to do. This was my only shot. And it just made sense knowing my background and history of everything I tried. It just made sense that this was an addiction. Mm -hmm. And the one Mm -hmm. thing I just want to say is that what I thought was this very restrictive food plan, for me, it wasn't restrictive. It was the only thing that gave me freedom. Mm -hmm. I didn't know that at the time, but I do now. So I think it was just people talking the language of addiction. It didn't Mm -hmm. make sense that I was, I was smart. I'd worked hard and here I was. My life was, I was getting fatter and fatter and fatter. Yeah. And there's a lot of shame around that. And there's a feeling of failure. Like, why can't I lose the weight and keep it off? You know, it's just, uh, you know, how many years, you know, 43 years I did that. Um, In one of your podcasts, I love this part. And and I've, I've really embraced this too in my recovery. And that is, I heard you talk about self-love and that you've really embraced embrace loving yourself. And I think that is a key to doing this, having real compassion for yourself and really caring, caring about yourself. I wasn't really taught that. And uh, so talk about that as it, as it, it does uh, part of your recovery. Yeah. Well, I'll just be really clear here. It's not like I've arrived at self-love. This will be a forever <laughs> journey of, of um, yeah. Of really having compassion and love myself. And it really is the truth. This is part of, I have to commit to doing this every day because it's not my go-to. My go-to is shame and unworthiness and second guessing myself. That's my go-to. And part of, as you just said, the having this obesity issue. And we're in a world that you know, we, we can openly oppress people that are fat and it's okay. And so I was really beaten down, not only by society, but also by myself, yeah. um, beaten down to, I was just nothing. What was, you know, I, 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 how could I be in this world when I couldn't even control my eating? You know, what mm-hmm. was wrong with me? So I was beaten down. Um, and that has been when I talk about when we talk about getting sober as only the foundation, the whole rest of emotional sobriety is around um, starting to treat ourselves with respect and, dig- and dignity and believe we have worth in this world. Mm-hmm. And, and I mean that on a really practical level. I don't mean that in a, you know, esoteric way, like how do I get up today and have respect and kindness so that I can go to bed tonight loving myself. And how I do that is really about building my self-esteem. And that's basic. You know, what What are the things throughout the day um, that gives me that? And it's being um, honest to the best of my ability. It's doing basic, you know, like doing the dishes, making my bed. It's being with other people and showing up for them in love and kindness 
And I do that, yes, for them, but I really do that so at the end of the day, I can go to bed. That is the way that builds my self-esteem and builds my love. And the the 12-step programs are a program that gives me a way of living where I get to do that. And so, as I say, I won't ever, I've not arrived, and I will never arrive here before I die, but I commit to the best of my ability every day to show up. And that means even when I make mistakes, I'm just a human, that I can show myself some compassion and love because I'm going to make mistakes every day. Every day. That's just the way the world is. So, I now have a program and people around me that help me do that. Right. That's my commitment in, in our program. My hope is that people show up and they feel the room. There's room for them. There's a seat at the table for them and what they're going through. Mm-hmm. And we often say, you know, we're going to love you until you love yourself, which I hated that saying at the beginning, too. but it's been really helpful. <laughs> Yeah, that that, that one I didn't like, but uh, it is true. And uh, the twelve steps help, and having having your tribe of fellows uh, that uh, support you, and having you know just the tools to continue the recovery in this. I mean, you and I are, I think I can say this: we're both at normal weights, and uh, life is good. I never thought it would be this good. I don't have food or my weight in my head anymore. And so I, I'm able to live this life, you know, and really care about myself and care about others. So it's beautiful. Yeah. I, I it, this, this, my, my abstinence and sobriety, as I say, gave me a life. It gave me a life. I don't have to worry about the food and the weight. I get to spend my time focusing on living life, being in mm-hmm. this world. And it's hard sometimes. And it's great sometimes. And this is life. And I just get to deal with life as it comes. And I don't have to be obsessed with food and my body and what I look like. Mm-hmm. I get right. to live and show up in the world the best I can. Yeah. It, it, it's kind of a miracle yeah. that we, that is available to all of us. Yeah, yeah. Uh, well, as we kind of get closer to the end here, a couple of more questions. Um, how many people have you have been through shift? And uh, I guess what is the success rate? I know you track it. I think Phil and Mary tracked it. Uh, how do you stay in front of people and how they're doing? Yeah. So, you know, the truth is I can't tell you an exact number, how many people have been through uh, our program in the last 30 years. It's in the thousands for sure. Thousands Mm -hmm. of people have come through and um, we have done surveys tracking people. And it seems that uh, it it looks a bit like 30% of the people that come in the first time get abstinent and are abstinent five years later. Uh, which is quite substantial for addiction recovery. There's not a high rate of recovery in addiction. Um, And then 30% of the people come in, get abstinent. Um, They're abstinent five years later, and they've had some bumps along the way. They've picked up food, they've put it down, they've had some relapse, uh, but they've stayed the course. And five years later, they're abstinent. And then about the, the rest of the folks... Um, we're not sure. We don't hear from them. So whether they're in their food or they've done something else, we're not sure what happens with them. Mm -hmm. And one of the things we really try and set people up for is long-term success. Like it's one thing to be absent and sober when you're, when you're with us and your food's being served, but how are you going to live your life? 
Uh, So we really encourage people to be part of a 12-step program. And the other thing we've really noticed is that people that stay close to us as a professional organization or other professionals that recognize food as an addiction do much better. Mm, So I think one of the most important pieces is that you say with peers that believe food is an addiction and they share that with you and you stay with professionals that see food as an addiction. Mm-hmm. Um, and if you stay close to that and get a lot of that support, um, that often uh, relates to longer term success, longer yeah. term freedom. Yeah. And so we're really constantly trying to create programs for longevity. It's one thing yeah. to get sober and abstinent, but then after that, it's how do we live life? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Now you say that uh, work. You you worked with alcohol addiction and as a counselor, and you said that it's easier. That was an easier thing to do than to work with people in food addiction. So I was just wondering about that and why you've been, you've counseled people in alcohol and food. Yeah. 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 It came to a point where I was working actually part-time with alcoholics and drug addicts and part-time with food addicts. And I had to make a choice. And the truth was working with alcoholics and drug addicts was way, way easier. Um, but I just knew in my heart the, 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 the place that the, the addiction that had really got me was food. So I knew that was where my, my place was. And, and I think it's because, um, of things I've already said, uh, we have to eat and foods all around us and the world doesn't see it as addiction yet. And so we strongly believe that people with food addiction actually need more support than people with drug and alcohol addiction. And, and that's not the way it's set up. You know, people will go to 30 to 90 days of treatment in drug and alcohol addiction, no problem, but they want to come, you know, to a one week program with us and think they're wham, bam, thank you, ma'am. It's all done. And, um, it's not true because we do have to eat every day. And so um, one of the things that people often do is they, they get sponsors uh, through a 12 step program um, that they're in touch with almost every day around their food. And, and mm-hmm. we really encourage people to work a strong 12 step program. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's what I, that's how I've been able to recover. I talk to someone every day and then I weigh and measure my food and I do reading and writing. And I talk to at least four or five people a day. In, in the program so yeah, yeah me too susan and and i hope i never stop some people will say to me well don't you you know you've been doing this for eight and a half years you're a professional you don't have to do this anymore and it's like uh-uh this is what gives me freedom right and um it's My a joy now for me because i get to see yeah. yeah right i get to see what life i get by doing these things so right and i hope i never have to stop i hope yeah. i never stop yeah, my son-in-law asked me the other day when he was watching me weigh, he says, do you think you'll always have to do that? Don't you know what four ounces of chicken is? And I said, I hope so. I said, I'll probably be the only 90-year-old in the nursing home weighing and measuring my food, you know. <laughs> so. I'll be there with you, Susan, I hope. Yeah. If I'm lucky, if I'm lucky, I will weigh and measure my food for the rest of my life. That's yeah. the truth. Me too, because we don't we don't know what. Uh, fortunately, right now, what relapse uh, looks like, but one day at a time. Um, yeah, I, I, you, your uh, world will change uh, when the DSM five uh, recognizes food as a substance use disorder. There will be a waiting line to get into shift because at that point, uh, 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 insurance will pay for it, as uh, just like they do alcohol and drug treatment. So, uh, yeah, get ready. Cause, uh, we think it's going to happen. Uh, so <laughs> 
Yeah. But, yes. Uh, I mean, we've been working hard at getting it in there. But, yeah. Yeah. That's for sure. It looks, uh, there's some hope there, but Amanda, it's been great to get to know you. Uh, I've known you now for a while and, uh, uh, just it's it's a privilege to know you. Um, if someone wants to consider coming to Shift for the one week intensive, um, you know the website is of course foodaddiction.com. You can go there and find out more. Uh, but what would you tell someone that that uh, thought that they may be a food addict or they know someone that might be a food addict? Uh, what would you What would you say? Yeah. So we do. Um we have free consultations that you can um, set up a time to chat with myself or one of the other counselors. And uh, we don't just talk about shift. We kind of talk about all the options. Mm-hmm. Um, and a lot of people do that. We also say, we also have these, these shift strong calls. Anyone can get on our shift strong calls. You just go to our website. The link is there. They're free and get in the room with other people. Does this, do you, do you um, relate to them? Ask them questions. Um, the, the, the best information you're going to get is, is from the peers and the people that have walked through our program and other programs. Um, and, and what I know is that I could never imagine I would have this life I'm living Mm -hmm. and I'm nothing special. I am nothing special. It is there for everybody, but you just need to work with people that really understand what's going on with you and are there to support you. Right. And there's more and more of us coming out in the world that are actually treating food addiction yeah. and um, yeah. just Esther, get support. Uh, this is, this is not your fault. Yeah, you are not weak. Yeah. I know Esther Helga Goodman's Dottier was uh, in the States uh, recently and uh, did a shift intensive. Uh, she was there at one of your shift intensives and she trains uh, food addiction counselors and uh, offers that certification. So um yeah, that's uh, you guys are all doing heroes' work. You really are right on the front lines. Mm-hmm. Thank so, you, Susan. So are yeah. you. So are you. Just doing these podcasts are amazing. Oh, yeah, I love them. Well, thanks, Amanda, for joining me. It's been great. I'll let you know when the uh, episode comes out. Thanks for joining me today. Thanks so much for allowing me the opportunity. This is the Food Addiction Podcast. We hope you enjoyed the podcast and learned more about this disease. We hope you will rate and write a review on this podcast and share it with others. If you or someone you know is suffering from the disease of food addiction, there is a solution. The various food addiction recovery programs are available and listed on the website, theinfactschool.com. Or if you would like to know more about how to get certified in treating food addiction, the school is accepting applications now for its next training beginning in September 2023. Go to theinfactschool.com. That's I-N-F-A-C-T school.com to learn more.